Welcome to Chapter 1 of The Prince's Podcast. I'm Nicholas Barrett. I write about politics for The Huffington Post and The New Statesman, and in a past life, I opened post for Harriet Harman. And I'm Lewis Miller. I'm a political science PhD student at the European University Institute in Florence, where I specialise in European Union politics. And in a past life, I was a chair of Scottish Labour students and also run an online campaign called Stay In Europe. And we're currently sitting in a dimly lit room directly adjacent to the Basilica of Santa Croce, the resting place of the godfathers of the Renaissance. We are entering the heavily saturated market of political podcasts through the eyes of Niccolo Machiavelli. Lewis, who was Niccolo Machiavelli and why do you insist on sleeping so close to his dead body? Um, well, Niccolo Machiavelli was a bureaucrat in uh, Renaissance Florence during the time of the Republic. It's important to remember that technically it was a Republic for a very long time, even when the Medici were there. But they were just incredibly powerful and wealthy men who had de facto, that is, had, um, for the fact of the matter, they basically had power over the state. Um and so, for a period, Nicola Machiavelli was helping administer the state, and he was a very able man. Um, but when the Medici returned, eventually, he was cast out into the wilderness in his home and exiled from the city after being brutally tortured as well, where he wrote quite famous works uh, on politics. Now, the reason why these are very famous is because he was beginning to think like other Renaissance thinkers, scientifically about the matter. He was taking case studies of how a prudent actor, or prudent prince, should act. And he was generalising principles, which is very much what political scientists do today. And secondly, he was challenging the established order. He was saying good people aren't good rulers. Uh, effective rulers are the important ones. Um, and that there's an element of deceit, although he is more principled than the word Machiavellian often implies. Now, the prince is uh, perceived as being slightly evil. I told a friend of mine that I was making a podcast about the prince, and she recoiled. Is the prince an evil book? It's not an evil book at all. And I think most people understand that Nicola Machiavelli was talking about the fact that the means justify the ends. And it's the means that they quibble over. Um, established Christian thinking was saying that you should be a pious person, a generous person, and so on. And he says, you know, all these, all these are unimportant. These are not the ends of ruling. The ends of ruling is making sure that your state's stable, that the people of your state aren't suffering, that you don't end up having your head cut off. Um, he was really talking about effective governance rather than you being a good Christian. And so if you want to ask, well, what would you rather your ruler do? govern effectively, or govern as a good Christian, I think Machiavellians would quite rightly say I would rather have an effective ruler than a good Christian. You were saying to me recently that it's become a cliche that everything you read about Machiavelli has a sentence or two at the start saying that he isn't the monster we think he is. Yeah, I mean, everyone basically starts any article involving Machiavelli saying that, oh, well, he wasn't actually a Machiavellian. Um, And there's an element of truth in that, but yeah, it's turned into a complete cliche. Um, if you read his discourses, which are a lot closer to what he actually thought, he's he's studying why the Roman Empire was so great. And he even explicitly at one point says that he's much more a Republican than an autocrat. Um, so 
you know, this idea of the prince and this autocracy where the prince is devious and stabbing people in the back, he doesn't necessarily believe in, in fact. He is interesting partly because he likes Numa Pompilius, who was um, uh, the second king of Rome, a legendary king of Rome. And he was a very pious king. He was the embodiment of piety in ancient Rome. And he was completely dismissed by some because he didn't conquer anything, Montesquieu in particular. But uh, Machiavelli says, well, he was very important because his religious norms created the order that sustained Roman society. So he said that like, it's good to have people that create, you know, piety is useful in creating stability, but it's not the most important thing in creating an effective ruler, which is what the prince is about. So his views are a little bit more complicated than often given because most people read the prince and think that's his views 100%. Um, and I think his views are a lot more complicated than that. Okay, so now that we've got the obligatory uh, Machiavelli apologia out of the way, I'll just introduce the podcast a bit. Uh, we're going to go through this uh, vaguely in chapters, not so much uh, this week because chapter one is so small. And we're going to discuss contemporary events, what's happening now in the world, in politics, mainly in Europe and America, through the eyes of Machiavelli. And we are going to dole out the kind of advice, hopefully, that he would give if he was here. Now, this is a pilot episode. We originally started this as an event. No one turned up. So, and we said if um, we were aiming for a dozen people to come. So if a dozen people listen or download this podcast, we might make episode two. So it's really up to you if we do any more of this. But we are going to start in America, where uh, we've been watching some very fun debates. Now, I watched the latest uh, Saunders-Clinton debate, which I believe was on MSNBC. And it has I have to say it was one of the most exciting debates I've seen in my life. It was very substantive. You had two people absolutely going at each other, hell for leather. It was the pragmatist. Um, Hillary likes to say that she is a progressive who can get things done versus Bernie Saunders, who is fighting for the 99%, it seems. Lewis, did you watch the debate? Um, I've seen bits of it. I'm not a specialist in US politics, but I know that you did. Obviously, you just said that as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you this. Um, who do you think is the most Machiavellian of the two? I think by far Hillary Clinton is the most Machiavellian of the two. Um, a lot of people would say that she has sacrificed principles to get things done, and I think her her se- her cell now it's a very hard cell in modern politics. Is she's saying, look, I'm I might not be the person of your dreams, but I can talk to Republicans in the way that um, Obama has not been able to, because Obama's years have been unfortunately defined by gridlock in Congress and the Senate, where he has been filibustered more times than any of his recent predecessors. And his idealistic agenda has really got stuck in the mud. And that's not to say that he hasn't done some um, rather historic things in office. But uh, what do you think Machiavelli would say to Hillary Clinton now? Because she's, she's running against this populist and she's having a much harder time than she thought she would. Firstly, why is that happening and what can she do about it? Well, actually, like... Um... I'm going to talk about Bernie first, because I think he's either a bad man or going to be a bad ruler. Um, so if he's a Machiavellian, then he is a fantastic one. Because um, if he wants to appear as a man of the people and have their support, which is what he needs to do, Machiavelli says you have to choose between the elite and the people. And then if you have to choose between the two, you should choose the people. You should always have them on, on your side. And Bernie's been very effective at doing this and making Hillary look like the person associated with the elite. That's Hillary's biggest problem, that she's seen as this elitist figure. 
And I think a lot of politics just now is about getting angry at the elite, mainly because I think the system's largely broken. So he's either a bad man because he's lying through his teeth, um, which I don't think he is necessarily doing. I think he really means what he says. Um, so the, then it says, um, well, what if he's being honest? What is he if he really believes in, you know, spending all this money on and all sorts, raising taxes? Well, I don't think Machiavelli would necessarily support such a program. He likes his politicians frugal, and the defense of the state is very important to him. So you could say that um, he's kind of Republican in that sense, but I don't think he would be entirely. Because he also says you need to make sure that you have the people on site and that you're giving enough money and investing enough to keep yourself in power. And, um, but he also says that, um, that people need to toughen themselves up and they need to have this um, facade of virtue, which every well, this facade of sorry, virtue, yeah, that everyone sees, but behind the scenes they have to really stab people in the back in order to get the, the state run properly. So I don't think Bernie Sanders really embodies that second notion either, really. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't have this um, element of being a bad man. He seems to genuinely believe in what he's doing. But in terms of how he's actually going to get his policies enacted, I don't disagree with these policies. I mean, I would love to see America introducing greater health care and, you know, really dealing with their student debts as well. That's ridiculous. But I, when I look at Barack Obama's ability to get through this, uh, get through all the policies he's done, which are less radical than Bernie Sanders, you say, well, what's Bernie Sanders got that Obama doesn't? He seems Bernie Sanders' answer is, I want a revolution. And everyone wants a revolution to support what they think. But generally, democracy facilitates that through having elections. So I just don't think that Bernie Sanders has a platform that he's really justified well enough. How do you feel about that? Because you like him, don't you? Um, I get fired up by his speeches, Lewis, in the same way that I got fired up by Barack Obama's speeches. And, and I was going to ask you, because you, were, you you kind of grew up on the left with Labour Party in Scotland, is, is there not that romantic part of you that hears him speak and thinks, yeah, we should do that, and there's anger at the, at the big banks? Well, you know, like many in politics, I'm dead inside, so I don't really get fired up anymore. Um... And when I and when someone tries to get me fired up, I tend to be quite sceptical because I'm aware of this, um, this all, like as I said, this, these these bad people who want to get you all excited for their program, and then they implement something that they know that they're disingenuous essentially. Um, and we have evidence, um, for example, the political political crisis in Hungary was partly well, the original one before Viktor Orbán was in power was the Socialist Party. And they were recorded saying, we basically had to lie to win this election. And, um, and that obviously caused a scandal. You would, you would be outraged if your politician got recorded saying, well, we lied to win the election. And so when someone fires me up, um, I don't think my being fired up is an important thing in politics. I think what's important is to know that the policies that are being offered are achievable, that the person's able to implement them, and the person's going to be able to improve the lives of whoever needs improved, which is generally the poorest in society. And, yeah, so being fired up is completely irrelevant to me personally. 
Um, here's my own Machiavellian theory for Bernie Saunders. Okay. Um, you said that um, he wasn't a Machiavellian, but if he was, he was a genius. Mm-hmm. I agree, because I think that if he was a Machiavellian, he knows that he's, he's hammering Hillary Clinton on these um, alleged conflicts of interest. I think Hillary Clinton was paid about $600,000 to talk to Goldman Sachs for a few minutes, which, as we've discussed before, looks very, very dodgy and smells fishy, whether anything dodgy happened or not. So even if he doesn't get the nomination, he can spend the next few months hammering Hillary Clinton over the head with this, raising suspicion all over America on this issue. That means that once Clinton wins, regardless of what happens to Bernie Saunders, she'll be guarding extra uh, extra carefully against that. She will overcompensate for those accusations and that perception of her by staying the hell away from Wall Street. And if he achieves that and he creates a president who is petrified of being seen anywhere near Wall Street, then surely he's achieved something fantastic on behalf of the left, whether he wins the election or not. Well, let's imagine that Hillary does stay away from Wall Street. Wall Street will want to influence politics either way. So I can imagine them becoming even more Republican and giving even more money and trying to become even involved, even more involved with them. And so what you have is you have parties that are no longer forming broad coalitions. Some people want this in the United Kingdom with Corbyn. You know, they say we need to re-engage with our roots and stand up for trade unions and working class people. Um, There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Again, in an ideal world, I would like that. But in a democracy, it's not about the imposition of one group's interest over the other. And that is one of the problems many have with Wall Street, is they have a disproportionate amount of power, which needs to be dealt with. But if we have a situation where we're completely ignoring it, so we're imposing one group over another, for me that's not democratic enough because it's about joint decision-making, not collective enforcement over other groups. And um, so I don't necessarily think that would be good for democracy, nor do I think it's realistic. I think banks are going to have a big voice whether you like it or not. I'd be very surprised if Bernie Sanders completely ignored Wall Street for the entirety of four years. Um, would you think you could do that? <laughs> I don't know, but um, I think believing that banks will have power or not, that's what they want you to think, Lewis. But anyway, I'm going to steer the conversation back to this side of the Atlantic now because we should move on and we should talk about David Cameron and his um, slightly diluted, shall we say, EU negotiations. Um, so this week, um, David Cameron went over to uh, talk to his European fellow diplomats and he came back with a deal that the British press, at least, are absolutely sick of. And it's um, enhanced the no campaign in the referendum to keep Britain in. Lewis has a conflict of interest here because he is running a Twitter account and a Facebook page to keep Britain in Europe. I have a conflict of interest because I am employed by the, indirectly, very indirectly, through the European Union, living here abroad. I don't think it's bad a conflict of interest, if you're objectively <laughs> correct. OK, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and be very fair to David Cameron here. How did he do? Has, um, he had a, has he had a good week or a bad week? I am not entirely sure, to be honest, because I'm not sure how clever he is. Um, either he went into these negotiations knowing that he would have to compromise, um, and he obviously was trying to get everyone in the Tory party looking um, as if they're not really sure, we'll see how these go. Um, but the way EU politics works is all the leaders of the country sit down in a room and they come out with an agreement they can all get behind. Um, In some areas, there's what's called qualified majority voting, where 
quite a high percentage is required for something to pass, but it means if there's one intransigent man sitting in the corner screaming with his paper, that they can move on from there, and that was a significant improvement. But generally, they don't take decisions like that. Most people build up coalitions and they come to some sort of collective agreement. Um, so I think by the fact that he was making such high demands initially and that he seemed to be boiled down slightly, you know, I think he was trying to promise too much from the start because he wouldn't want to overplay his hand. He wouldn't want to say, I'm going to do all this and then come back and say, well, I didn't do it all. Um, and, you know, for me personally, a lot of the stuff is kind of pointless. Um, this renegotiating the words ever closer union out of the EU treaties is pointless. Uh, what, what is the point? Um, ever closer union is just simply a, a statement that was there from the Rome Treaty, the original treaty of EU. So we signed into that and then we voted to keep that in there in the 1970s. So, um, so some of the stuff seemed completely pointless, but he's managed to get stuff back. And in the 1970s election, that was enough to sway some people, and that's what he wanted to do. In 1975, Harold Wilson renegotiated about butter. Uh, so that was slightly less exciting. Uh, New Zealand butter, to be precise. Um, and most people really didn't know what it was, but the fact that they got some compromise, that was enough for them. And I think the fact that they've seen some compromise and, you know, he's managed to get things like increasing competitiveness on the agenda, that's going to be fine for him. But I don't think they went how he planned. I think um, I think from the results, they're not as high as he might have hoped. So either he completely doesn't understand Europe, or he's, um, yeah, or he's maybe very... Ma I don't think there's any way you can have any advantage by not meeting your own standards. What do you think about this? Well, I was going to ask you, what does Machiavelli teach us about appearances and the kind of um, presentations we should think about? Well, I mean, there's one here, actually, I have a quote here. That, um, it's better to be seen to be liberal and it's better to be seen to be fair and honest and so on. But knee politics, it, it doesn't really work like that. You want to be, you want to be seen to standing up, for your, standing up for your state interest. And I think every government kind of accepts this. When they come up with a deal, they want to be able to go home to their own populists and say... Oh, well, we got this for you. And so when um, Cameron was walking into these negotiating rooms, he should have really had it in his mind that he's going to have the other people under the same pressures as he is. Because the prince is talking about international relations to an extent, but they're more talking about how you govern your own state. So there should have been an equal understanding that all other people would want to be standing up for the interests of their people. You know? he, didn't, he didn't seem to ever consider that. He didn't really seem to... He, he, he was always talking about Eastern Europe, but never to Eastern Europe. He never really considered the interests of the other countries in Europe. But then again, I suppose he never... It, it took a long time for him to be pushed into this place, and now he seems to have created a political embarrassment for himself, which really came home this week. Do you think anything that happens now can basically change after the 18th of February when the rest of Europe votes on it? And after the 18th of February, nothing that happens now will matter? Or is what hap what's happening now very significant to the rest of the referendum campaign, because when I look at the polls, I'm concerned. Well, I think he's got something which is better than nothing. Um, and there's something I used to do when I was a kid, right, which is whenever I was found to do something stupid or put forward an opinion that was wrong, I just said it was ironic, 
or that it was always planned to be that way, right? Whenever something luckily went in your favour, you made it look as if you planned it. So I think if this backlash increases his um, chances of getting more in the renegotiation, then that might be useful. But I don't know to what extent this is already sewn up. Because um, it is in nobody's interest for the, Brit- the British to leave the EU. Uh, it's not in Britain's interest. Uh, for example, banks are now quite concerned about what's going to happen. It's similar to what was happening in the Scottish referendum when it was looking like it was a possibility. Um, but for other countries as well, not being able to coordinate so effectively on things like counter-terrorism is in nobody's interest. Not having free movement to to allow employees to travel across borders for short-term projects. For example, I know someone who was working on a popular TV show and he was from Romania and he said that it's more efficient to go and work in Britain. It's nobody has interest to lose that ability to work across borders. and So I don't think... Um, I think it might help him, but whether that's intentional or not, I have no idea. It depends how clever you think David Cameron potentially is. Living here on the continent, we obviously get a sense of, um, especially working at the European University Institute, we get a sense of the bigger problems in the European Union at the moment. We don't know if the euro is bringing Europe together or tearing it apart. This migrant crisis is a kind of unprecedented challenge for us. And it feels to a lot of my friends here in Florence that um, England, Britain is uh, flirting with the exit. It's very, very much kind of first world problem, as it were. Do you think the British, um, our compatriots, have a cultural aversion to European integration? I don't know. You make the point. You should argue that. Well, I, th- I think we do. I think um, the European Union, um, it started, Robert Schuman started it. He started... Um, integrating the coal and steel markets as an insurance policy against the Third World War between France and Germany. He wanted to make war impossible by integrating those markets. And I think that was a very easy political achievement because the populations of both com- countries had been so affected by that war. Whereas, yeah, we got we got bombed and blitzed, but I think the blitz, it, it gave us a kind of bunker mentality, as it were, against everything else. And we, we, didn't, we didn't suffer anywhere near as badly as other... European countries did. So we never really had this huge um, experiential incentive like the other countries did to really get stuck into this project. It's probably why we were so scared of the euro. And it feels like whatever whatever happens, um, even if we stay in, in June or July or whenever this referendum is, there's always going to be an attitude in Britain of Europe is something else. We always talk about Europe as if it's something else. It's a European problem. These are decisions made in Brussels, as if Brussels isn't full of British diplomats, MEPs and commissioners. So even in our language, we have this otherworldly attitude towards European integration. And I don't see that problem going away anytime soon. The only plus side is, I guess, our generation, uh, people who are perhaps younger than 30, who have grown up in this kind of... um, with the Erasmus generation who feel the need to, um, or, or, or aware of their right to go and work and live anywhere in the European Union, they're very much in favour of it. But as you know, we don't vote very it's, often. Um, you're right. Uh, there, I was reading a book the other day that was talking exactly of that post-World War II feeling that um, you know, Europe had gone through this horrible series of wars um, that had taken place on their countries Although Britain did get blitz, did suffer the blitz, um, you know, it didn't, wasn't invaded. Britain had this continuity lasting 
hundreds of years, you know, no reform had happened because of an invasion, unlike France and Germany. Um, Italy had revolution. So all these countries were going through quite a lot of revolutions, um, whereas Britain didn't really have that. And Britain also had her empire to look, kind of look after and co-interest herself in. And um, so you get this in the 1950s three circles policy. You have the Commonwealth, you have the Atlantic, and you have Europe. And, you know, um, Britain's kind of half-heartedly in each. It's not trying not to be half-hearted in the Commonwealth, but the fact of the matter is that countries are now going for their own independence and they're lessening the power of Britain over them. So it's becoming... There's a disintegration of the Commonwealth. Um, the USA is, frankly, a superpower and can do what it wants, and we find that out in Suez. Um, the USA just says, well... You know, Sterling's suffering, we're not going to help you unless you pull out of Suez, which we do. Um, and so you're left with Europe. Um, and basically, the half-hearted commitment to Europe wasn't working. We weren't influencing laws that we needed to influence. And so eventually it just became clear that we, we have to be part of this. Um, we don't necessarily want it to become a federation. But, um, you know, this is supranationalism isn't feder federalism. These are two kind of different ideas of how the international system should work. Um, so, yeah, um, there is a sort of inbuilt half-heartedness to this, but we do realise that the necessity, the necessity of working with other countries in Europe, of managing a common market, of working together on foreign policy and having something coherent when we need to act in our own interests. Uh, and Britain, frankly, in the 1950s, was realising it couldn't walk around the world doing what it wanted. Um, so, you know, you've got these two kind of views of what Britain is. Um, and people like myself are quite comfortable with doing what's best for Britain through using her influence in international organisations. Whereas some people think that's an affront to the idea of sovereignty. That sovereignty involves cutting yourself off from all these other bodies and doing, yourself, doing whatever you want unattached to them, which is, in my opinion, that's not correct. And I don't think that's unacademic to say so, because what is academia if it's not trying to work out what the truth is. Now, speaking of the British Empire, we have a colony called Scotland, and you insisted on discussing... We have a colony called Scotland? <laughs> Where's that? You insisted on discussing Scottish Labour this week. Now, I didn't completely understand what happened to Scottish Labour this week, because it doesn't seem to be covered much um, in the international press. Why don't you tell me what happened in Scotland? Well, Scotland's very interesting, um, not just because um, my family are there... Um, but it's interesting because... Lewis is wearing a St Johnston FC hat. Today. Yeah, I am. Um, but no, Scotland's very interesting just now because we're in the post-referendum era. So everyone was very interested in what was happening during the referendum. But there's also been a slow transformation in Scottish politics, um, which has been happening for quite a long time, actually. Um, and that's the, the Labour Party. It was a traditionally a left-right system. In 1959, the Conservatives got over 50% of the vote. And then, since then, Labour began to dominate Scottish politics. And in the 1980s, the Conservatives began to decline. And you have the replacement of the Conservatives with the Scottish Nationalists, who rise around the mid-70s. But now, you have this left-right system in the 70s. Now it's been completely replaced with um, half of the population are voting SNP, and half of the population split between these other two. So the Conservatives have been a, a kind of fairly unimportant actor in Scottish politics since the late 80s, early 90s. 
Now, this week we saw the first poll since the 1960s where the Tories were polling above Labour in Scotland. I am... Yeah, I think it could be that long ago. Um, I don't know particularly for sure that that's actually how long ago it was, but the Conservatives are polling very well. Uh, and they got 12% in 2011. They're now on 19%, so they've gained like 7%, which is quite a lot. And Labour is collapsing, meanwhile. And Labour's decline is very interesting. Um, because there's a normal narrative that Labour's kind of been declining for a long time, but that decline's kind of happening for two reasons. You've got the referendum decline, where a lot of Labour voters were voting uh, for SNP now because they voted yes. And then you have the longer-term decline that everyone kind of neglects. And I have the numbers here, um, luckily. So the last time Labour was it, Labour was gaining around about 1.2 million votes between 1987 and 1997. Then, between 1997 and 2010, it's getting about a million votes. In 2015, it dropped to 700,000. So that's quite... A, they've dropped half a million since 1997. But they had this period between 97 and 2010 where it kind of stagnated around 1 million um, in the Scottish Parliament, this has been declining as well. So it went from 900,000 in 99 to around about six to 6,500,000. And now, we're, if the polls are right, it will be about 400,000 people vote for them. So they've lost almost, well, over half, if this, these polls are right, they've lost basically half of their support. Uh, and that's worked out using the turnout from the last election. I can't be sure that's going to be correct. And but, um, does, does what's happened to uh, the Labour Party in Scotland correspond to a general decline in the Social Democratic Parties in Europe? Yes, well, that's one of the interesting things about this. You were telling me the Labour Party in Britain overall peaked around the time of the turn of the century. Um, Yes. Well, in Scotland it definitely peaked around the turn of the century and it's just been slowly declining. And you have a party that was previously dominant being not only replaced but completely beaten out of the water uh, with a party that's um, now getting about 50%. So there is a problem in social democracy where you have a party now that's about nationalism, um, and it's not traditionally left or right. They have their right-wing elements, they have quite a large kind of centre-left element, and they have basically supplanted Scottish Labour. And this is concerning for quite a lot of parties across Europe, because as parties move to the, to the centre, it's very easy for outsider parties to move to the left of the Social Democratic Party, whichever country it is, and whittle away their support. But if that party then moves to the left, which is what Scottish Labour has done through saying we're going to increase taxes and public spending, well, if Scottish Labour moves to the left, it remains to be seen whether you can take those votes back from what is now the dominant party in Scottish politics. So, um, yeah, it's there is a general decline that all countries are suffering from, and Scottish Labour is testing the will moving left work. And do you think it will? Do you have any opinion on this? Uh, whether going further to the left will work for Scottish Labour, I don't think it will. But the, the the obligatory question the format of this podcast requires me to ask you is, could Niccolò Machiavelli save Scottish Labour in any way with any advice? Well, the Nicola Sturgeon's been very effective at talking the language of the people, of the working people, and I think... Scottish Labour was very much seen as the establishment as well. Um, so I think this has worked in our favour. Uh, in a democracy, this should be common sense. Uh, you should always be seen as a person of the people because it's the people who vote for you. The elites don't vote for you in a democracy. 
So this is all common sense. But um, yeah, um, I've, I've heard people, with people. People are basically been complaining about charisma uh, vacuum in the Labour Party since Tony Blair left. I don't know if that's enough to save Labour in Scotland because the whole political landscape there seems so utterly polarised after the referendum. It seems that it doesn't matter what the Labour Party say at the moment. Would people listen to them anyway? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big problem for them. I think uh, what they're trying to do with this one pence tax rise is position themselves to the left of the SNP because that's what happened to the that's what the SNP tried to do to Labour. They said, well, "Look, Labour's campaigning with the Conservatives on the referendum. They're um, they're doing all these votes in Westminster that we don't like." Uh, they've done all these policies and they've all been about this centrism for years we need a real anti-austerity party and they made the most of that with Ed Miliband and crushed Labour in their course constituencies and um, and Glasgow also voted for independence Glasgow being the traditional seat of the Labour Party, more generally not just the Scottish Labour Party because Keir Hardy formed the Labour Party in uh, Glasgow I'm pretty sure so you know, this this big change is a big problem for them. Um, and they just became the establishment party. I would anticipate a few more election cycles of SNP dominance in Scotland, but gravity always wins and all good things do come to an end, including this podcast. Um, okay, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's gone pretty well. Thank you, Lewis, for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Um, we've gone on for half an hour there. I hope you found it useful. If 12 people listen to or download this podcast we will make episode two we're deadly serious thank you lewis and we will see you next time